Section 14 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 10. Two Imperial Sisters. The long and prosperous reign of Basil II, 976 to 1025, has no further interest for us, since we find in the chronicles no reference to a wife of that hardy and brilliant soldier. His younger brother, Constantine, was more like their mother, a man of passion and greed, though with no higher ambition than that of an imperial enjoyment of wine and women, and in that enjoyment he was quite willing to await the natural death of his more sober and more distinguished brother. Although he approached his seventieth year when the undivided rule fell to him, his ways were still those of an aged and jaded and not very refined sybrite, and the three years of his reign interest us only because they show us the earlier environment of his two daughters, Zoe and Theodora, who are the next to occupy, alternately, or simultaneously, according to the course of the romance, the gymnasium or women's quarters of the palace. Constantine's wife, Helena, daughter of the patrician Alypius, is a mere cipher in the imperial records, and seems to have died much earlier, leaving three daughters, Eudocia, Zoe, and Theodora, to grow up as they might in the palace of her voluptuous husband. Eudocia, the eldest, lost during an attack of smallpox whatever comeliness she may have had, and retired to hide her disfigured countenance under the veil of a nun. There remained Zoe and Theodora, and Constantine determined to marry one of the two to some important noble and leave the crown to him. The elder of the two was nearly fifty years old, and Theodora could not have been much younger. It is not very clear why they had not married earlier. Their father, who could hardly be induced to take the least interest in his empire, had wholly neglected his daughters until he held the scepter in his hands and felt that the time was at hand when he must relinquish it to another. He was a very large and robust man, absorbed in hunting, gambling, and other less reputable pleasures, and even when he was sole emperor he left the cares of state to his eunuchs and retained his imperial attention for the theatre, the banquet, and the dance. In his home the sisters had, says the chronicler, lived as they listed, and the further course of the story will make it probable that Zoe had not failed to enjoy her liberty. Theodora was less sensual, but we shall have to include both sisters in the list of empresses who were little embarrassed by moral scruples. In approaching their careers, we have the rare advantage of an excellent guide. Michael Sellis, one of the leading philosophers and literary men of Byzantine history, not only lived at their court and knew them intimately, but he had a genial taste for the tattle and scandal of a court, and not the least reluctance to entrust it to his graceful pen. He's been called the Voltaire of Byzantine letters on account of his brilliant, caustic, and very candid way of writing the story of his times. We shall find his chronography of inestimable value, provided we make due allowance for the prejudices of the politician and the amiable unscrupulousness of the anecdotist. Zoe and Theodora were very different types of women. Zoe, who will interest us most, was a woman of fine complexion, very graceful figure and ardent passions. She had large sensuous eyes under heavy eyebrows, a mass of blonde hair, and a skin of remarkable whiteness. She was of middle height, and preferred to dress in simple robes which exhibited her figure, rather than in the heavy and gorgeous draperies and massive jewelry of an empress. Though this simplicity of taste was limited, on one side by a passion for perfumes and cosmetics, 
of which she gathered the material from all parts of the world, and compounded either with her own hands or by her maids, so industriously that her room looked like a workshop. She took such care of her smooth and clear skin and blonde hair, that even in her seventieth year she had no wrinkle or other mark of age. She retained youth also in her blood, and we shall find her remarkably amorous for her sixth decade of life. Such a woman we shall hardly expect to find richly endowed with intellect, or greatly restrained by moral sentiments. Yet I think that M. Dio follows too literally the facile witticisms of Celis, when he speaks of Zoe as childish and silly. And I will prefer to let the story of her life tell us the limitations of her intelligence and character. Theodora will interest us much less than Zoe, and it will suffice to say that she was in all respects different from her sister. Her tall and graceless figure and her very plain features were compensated by a stronger intelligence and greater force of character. She could be coldly stern, even cruel on occasions, while cruelty only came to Zoe in the impulsive anger of her thwarted passions. We shall see that, when the occasion came to her, she cherished a very high ideal of public duty, and used her power with an intelligence and beneficence that Celis greatly underrates. Such were the two daughters, who, in middle age, were warned by their father that one of them must marry and inherit the empire. The choice of Constantine fell first upon a distinguished nobleman named Constantine de Lassinus, and a eunuch was sent to bring him from Armenia, where duty had taken him, to the court. Much tragedy might have been prevented if that eunuch had reached his destination in time, but he was recalled by a second courier, and told that the emperor had changed his mind. It appears that the commander of the palace guards had felt that he would not have much influence on a noble like Delasinus. He had brought to the notice of the emperor a less young and less vigorous candidate, Romanus Argyrus, who was related to Constantine. Romanus was sixty years old, and had little to recommend him except his incompetency, which would suit the designs of the officers of the court. He had, however, a wife living in Constantinople at the time, and it seems to have been supposed that he might not be willing to abandon her. The petty schemers of the court were accordingly directed to bring about a separation, and as Polyactus was dead, and a more accommodating patriarch held the sea, no opposition was expected from the church. A file of soldiers entered the mansions of Romanus, and told him that he had incurred the anger of the emperor. They were, they said, to lead him to the palace for execution, and his wife was to enter a monastery. Many eyes had been put out, on slight grounds during the three years' licentious reign of Constantine, and the threat was serious. The wife fled at once to a monastery, and Romanus was brought, in some trepidation, to the royal palace, to learn that, since his wife was now a nun, he was free to marry the emperor's daughter, and thus secure the purple. Instead of retiring to thrust a dagger into his heart, as an older Roman would have probably have done, the sixty-year-old noble graciously submitted his person to the princesses. Theodora, the favorite of her father, had the first choice, but she turned away in disgust. Possibly Romanus did not regret that he gave him the hand of the more charming Zoe, who, in her forty-ninth year, fully preserved the fresh and brilliant complexion of the warm passions of a young woman. He had set out from home prepared for death, and must have been bewildered by his fortune. The clergy obligingly disentangled the somewhat complicated relation in which they stood to each other in the eyes of the church, they were married, and crowned on 19th November, 1028, and as Constantine died three or four days afterwards, the duty, or pleasure, of governing the empire 
fell on them during the first week of their singular honeymoon. After this inauspicious beginning, we shall hardly expect the reign of Romanus III and Zoe to be one of brilliant and inspiring deeds. Indeed, we may say briefly that it was merely an inglorious effort to retain the crowns they had obtained. They adopted the easy device of emptying the treasury on the common folk, the clergy, and the monks. The private debts of citizens were paid by them, more churches were built or richly decorated, the clergy were relieved from taxation, and the monks, it was the very culmination of their golden age, were lodged in luxurious mansions which made their calling one of the most attractive in the empire. The graver nobles frowned, plotted, and were savagely punished, but we are interested in these conspiracies only as so far as they involve the imperial sisters. Theodora, a spirited and intelligent woman, naturally despised the marriage which she had refused, and was regarded with suspicion and hatred by her sister. By some means Zoe put at the head of Theodora's household a Paphlagonian eunuch, in her own pay, a very crafty and unscrupulous man named John, who was enjoined to watch Theodora's conduct. This very interesting person will be better known to us presently, as he was destined to be one of the most powerful men at Zoe's court. For the moment it is enough to say that, about a year after the coronation, Theodora was discovered to have some share in a conspiracy which was set afoot by Constantine, a relative of the emperor. It is curious that John also was found guilty, though whether this was merely a trick to conceal his spying, or he had really been gained by Theodora, it would be difficult to say. Theodora was expelled from the palace and confined in a building of Petrian, on the Golden Horn, which seems to have had the mixed characters of a monastery, a state prison, and a fort. It was a building to which Nisophorus had consigned Theophano for a few weeks after their marriage, and would have comfortable apartments. A year later, Romanus was ignominiously beaten by the Saracens, and the conspiracy revived. There is no proof that Theodora took part in it, but its aim would be, no doubt, to place her on the throne. In one of these moments of energy which passion occasionally gave her, Zoe went to Petrian, and forced her royal sister to take the vows and adopt the dress of a nun. As a number of other malcontents lost their eyes or liberty at the same time, the throne of Zoe and Romanus seemed to be firmly established. Unfortunately, a very grave breach now took place between the imperial pair, and as a handsome official entered the service of the palace, there happened what so commonly happens in Byzantine history under the circumstances. Zoe fell in love with a handsome servant, and Romanus died of a mysterious complaint. Delicacy compels me to refer the inquisitive reader to the Greek text of Sellis, or to the chronicle of the monk Zonorus, for a full explanation of the rift in the sacred palace. Briefly, Romanus had been assured by one of those soothsayers who were at the such high repute at Constantinople that he would have a son, and he zealously studied and employed the whole known of range aphrodisiacs and other contrivances that might help to ensure the fulfillment of the prophecy. After two or three years of this peculiar activity, he retired in despair from the struggle, leaving Zoe untouched and indignant. As she had now certainly entered her sixth decade of life, the modern reader will have but a slender sympathy with her, and will recognize a very low quality of character in her conduct. Her husband became ill, and his favorite chamberlain, Michael, was often summoned to attend him, even when Zoe shared his bed. This chamberlain was a tall, handsome, fresh-faced young man, whose form pleased the empress, 
but there was a deeper intrigue in the affair. The Chamberlain was a brother of a Paphlagonian eunuch, John, whom we saw in charge of Theodore's mansion, and it is now necessary to present him more intelligibly. John was a very shrewd, ambitious, vulpin provincial of mean family. He had been converted into a eunuch in earlier years, had held office in the employment of the Emperor Basil, and then retired to a monastery. His character was so far removed from religious ideals that one is disposed to imagine him as having been compelled to take the black robe for some indiscretion, but it is quite possible that he adopted it voluntarily, as at his time many of the monasteries were merely luxurious colonies of bachelors living on a swollen stream of legacies. Romanus, who knew his ability, brought him from his monastery to supervise Theodora and her affairs. In spite of the curious statement that he was himself involved in the conspiracy, he was soon back at court, and in great favor. He had five brothers and a sister, and the general character of the family may be deduced from the fact that three of the six brothers were money-lenders. Two, John and Simeon, were monks, while the sister, Maria, had married a ship-cocker at the Kays. John used his influence to introduce these brothers into the very lucrative service of the state. Within a few years, the beau of the family became emperor. The son of the ship-cocker also became emperor. The ship-cocker himself became high admiral of the fleet. Two other brothers had the rank of generals, and John became the virtual ruler of the empire. It was chiefly through his young and attractive-looking brother that John pushed his fortunes. Michael was a young man of large and well-proportioned figure, with that freshness of complexion which we often find in the nerve-diseased or epileptic subjects. He became a favorite chamberlain of Romanus, and John presently noticed that Zoe was interested in him. Romanus was visibly failing, and Michael was at times called in to chafe his feet as he lay in bed with Zoe. "'Who will believe?' the monk Zonaris asks." that he did not take the opportunity to rub Zoe's feet also. Zoe expressed to John a lively interest in his brother, and John took care that their movements should not be hampered by any restrictions that normally curtailed the liberty of a Byzantine empress. The pale Phlegonian, in the black dress of a monk, was already the supreme master of the palace, but the most piquant feature of his position is to find him chiding the nervous hesitation of his brother and feeding the improper admiration of the empress. Celis dilates, almost gloats, for pages over the development of this singular love story, in a way that hardly becomes a great exponent of Plato and Aristotle. Before long the relation of the two was known to the whole court. Michael was loaded with jewels and other presents, and not infrequently courtiers would find him sitting, still rather nervously, on the same couch with the infatuated empress. One day a servant entered the throne room for some purpose, and almost fell to the ground in astonishment. Zoe had made Michael sit on the throne, had put the crown on his head and the scepter in his hand, and was admiringly murmuring, My darling, my flower of beauty, joy of my eyes, consoler of my soul, etc. Instead of bursting into passion at the entrance of the official, she bade him do homage to the man who would one day be his emperor. So says at least the philosophic Celis, whom many believe. It is quite certain that Zoe made flagrant love to the Chamberlain, and that the Emperor knew it. His sister, Pocaria, angrily spoke to him of the notorious scandal, but he professed to be ignorant of it, and was content to exact from Michael an oath that there was no truth to the rumor. Other writers say that he overlooked the liaison because it preserved his middle-aged spouse 
from promiscuous irregularity. Romanus forgot that such love affairs were apt to entail tragic consequences for the superfluous man. As Zoe's passion increased, he found himself suffering from an alarming and mysterious illness. His hair fell out in patches, his breathing was labored, his face, a more significant symptom in, in an old man like Romanus, became livid and puffy. Whether his illness was really due to a slow poison, or whether the poison was administered by John or Zoe are points which we must leave as we find them in the Chronicles, uncertain. Since there is very little doubt that Romanus was murdered in the end, the theory of poison is not reckless, but Romanus was aged and worn, and the illness may have been natural. However that may be, Romanus lingered in a frightful condition until Holy Thursday of the year 1041. On that sacred day, Romanus distributed to the senators the ceremonious gifts prescribed in the ritual, and retired to the bath. From the bath he was presently removed in a dying condition to his bed. However possible it may be that he had had a serious attack of his illness in the bath, we cannot easily ignore the persistent statement that men entered the bathroom and either strangled the emperor or held his head under the water. Celis gives this as a rumor, but even he seems to believe it. Both Michael and John are accused of the murder, and it is left uncertain whether Zoe was privy to the plot. Her immediate conduct will not dispose us to be eager to clear her memory of the suspicion, but we may be sure that the monk John was the soul of the plot. Zoe came, with ostentatious, the chronicler says feigned, tears, to see that her husband was really dead or dying, though she did not await the end, which occurred soon afterwards. When we learn that she announced her intention of marrying Michael, the same evening, we are disposed to see her in an element of cold-blooded calculation, which does not very well assort with the character we had given her. It would probably be much more correct to conceive her as nervous and confused, and simply yielding to the dictation of the monk John. Her father's eunuchs, who had remained in her service, begged her to wait some time, but John bullied and threatened, and Michael was forthwith decked in the dead man's robes and placed beside Zoe in the gold-roofed hall. The patriarch was summoned to the palace and curtly ordered to crown Michael and marry him at once to the very recent widow in the presence of the assembled senators. The whole scene is so repulsive that we need not hesitate to accept the last touch given to it in the chronicles. The archbishop hesitated, but the present of a hundred pounds in gold from John removed his scruples and he invoked the blessings of God on the new imperial marriage. End of section 14